Every career is a journey. Every leader has a story. Welcome to Journey to the Energy C-Suite, where we look at the strategies and techniques that turn solid leaders into top executives. This is your place to hear practical wisdom and guidance from real people who know what it takes. With your host, Ryan Sanford. Welcome back to Journey to the Energy C-Suite. I am your host, Ryan Sanford. We have a great show planned for you today. But I first want to say a quick thank you to our show sponsor, the Price College of Business at the University of Oklahoma's Executive MBA Program in Energy. Please check out the show notes, though there will be a link uh, to their site where you can learn a lot more about the programs they have to offer in graduate and postgraduate education in energy. Uh, And one other quick note, uh, if you have enjoyed a lot of the podcasts on the OGGN network, please stay tuned. There is a new podcast launching very soon called Energy Scale-Ups. It will be hosted by uh, Jose Solis. So pay attention for that one. It should be out within the next day or two. Um, Now, very excited to introduce our guest to you today. He is a Wharton and Columbia trained executive leadership coach, facilitator, and speaker. He coaches and leads developmental workshops for leaders in Fortune 50 companies. He is one of the Marshall Goldsmith MG100 coaches. And his thought leadership on a variety of leadership and business topics have been featured in Forbes, Fast Company, and the Harvard Business Review. He also hosts his own LinkedIn Live discussion series engaging with the world's top thinkers, as well as owning and running his own consultancy called Partner Exec. He is Nihar Chaya. Nihar, old friend, it is good to have you with me today. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Great to be here. Congratulations on your new show. Thank you. Thank you. It's exciting to have you as one of my first guests. Um, It's funny because uh, if you think back over the last year, in many ways, the pandemic has kind of slowed everyone down, Um, Mm -hmm. being grounded at home for a long time and uh, having to work from home in most cases. But for you, you've become more prolific during the last year. Uh, Every time I look up, there's a new article that you're putting out. Uh, You've got your LinkedIn Live series show. Uh, You've stayed very busy, my friend. I'm trying to, Ryan. You know, I think I'm trying to take advantage of as much of the remote um, facilitation tech tools that we have out there, you know, whether it's LinkedIn Live or or like writing, as you said, and publishing. It's to me, it's a great way for me to stay uh, top of radar with my clients and also just keep learning. You know, as as you know, in leadership, we're always trying to find out new ways to uh, learn best practices that we can share with our clients. Yeah, I've got a lot of things I want to discuss with you today in the leadership space. But first, let's go back a little bit because you and I worked together years ago yeah. in the consulting industry. And it's been really fun and not surprising at all to see how successful you've been as you started your own business uh, several years ago, uh, Partner Exec. Tell us about how you started Partner Exec and then how that business has evolved over the last few years. Sure. So Ryan, you and I worked together uh, at PDI Corn Ferry uh, back around a little bit over 10 years ago now. Yeah, yes. So it's a really great reunion with you. Um, so I, you know, as you, as you remember, I was doing executive coaching there and, and um, assessments. And um, then I actually left to join Texas Instruments, where I led talent development and executive development there uh, in Dallas. And you know, around that time, around three or four years of working there, I, I really decided that I want to get back into coaching. And I always had an idea of starting my own practice, but, you know, I wasn't, I think I needed to kind of develop as much credibility and my own uh, point of view in, in executive coaching before I went out on my own. And around 2015 is when I felt it was time. 
The interesting thing is that as I left to start Partner Exec, which was a, which is a sole proprietor consultancy, um, as you probably know, when you work for a company, you generally spend all your time in that company. And I had moved to Dallas to join TI from Houston when you and I worked together. So when I left TI, I had no network in Dallas. I really had to start from scratch. And so it was a, it was a challenging time, you know, but it was one of those things where I just had this passion for bringing all the coaching learning that I had developed over different companies uh, to, to kind of bring it to my own style. And so, you know, over the past six years, it's evolved. Um, I'm really happy to say it's, you know, we're still doing really well. I'm actually working with uh, many top companies, American Airlines, Coca-Cola, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, uh, Pioneer Natural Resources in the energy sector. And it's an opportunity for me to uh, not only be an executive coach to the C-level and emerging leaders, but also facilitate a lot of team exercises. Because as you know, a lot of the success of a leader is really going to be around their stakeholders and the people around them. And so I'm doing a lot of coaching and facilitation work. And yeah, publishing and, and the thought leadership work has actually helped a lot in terms of building uh, that clientele. Yeah, st- staying busy for sure. You mentioned you're, you're developing your own point of view over the last few years. Maybe share a little bit about what is your your point of view on leadership? Yeah, I think um, so. The f- first thing that comes to mind is that um, I think leadership is something that is confusing to many people because there's so much written out there about it. Uh, we oftentimes go to you know biographies of, of of you know military generals, for instance, or politicians, or you know Steve Jobs type characters. But the reality is that leadership, it, wherever you are in an organization, you can be good at it and it's also very important for you to recognize that it's not an innate skill. It's something that, that I think you have to develop through practice, like something that I think Marshall Goldsmith says is leadership is a contact sport. So what that means is that you really can't operate in a vacuum. If you want to be an individual contributor in your organization and kind of work on specific projects, to a certain extent, you can really focus on your own fixed skill set. But the moment you move into a managerial or a leadership role, it really does become a, a very a nebulous exercise around what success means because it really is more about how people perceive you as opposed to how much you know. And so my point of view with leadership is really that if you are willing to develop enough insight about your strengths and your personality, but also the opportunities for growth, and you constantly think about adaptability, then there's ways to always be a better leader. And that, to that extent, I would say that you know, most of my clients are actually already very successful. So the idea is, you know, why do they need a coach? Mm-hmm. Because again, to play at the next level, it, they rarely can see the things that other that other people can see about them. And that's really necessary to, to be able to engage and inspire people to, to follow their leadership. Yeah, that, that's that's a nice segue into the next topic that I wanted to get into you with you. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about what what leaders need to learn, what they need to experience, what they need to become. To, to, to really uh, achieve the executive levels in a, in a large organization. We don't talk often enough, I think, about those things that can become roadblocks, those blind spots that can really become derailers in someone's career. I wonder, uh, in, in some of the coaching work that you do and some of the team facilitation, uh, are there you know a couple of, a couple of those common uh, sort of derailers that, that you're seeing in your coaching? And, and then you know, how do leaders need to think about uh, addressing those? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a few common derailers that I see all the time with executives, and it's a big reason why they'll bring in a coach like me. Um, the first one that comes to mind is just the inability to think and act strategically. 
Um, so part of that, I mean, when I say think and act, think is, thinking is, you know, a little bit of a cognitive aspect to it. Um, but the acting strategically, even if you don't necessarily naturally think strategically, the acting strategically is something that if you don't do, you can really hinder the scalability of the, of the company. So, you know, we see leaders that really get too much in the weeds, that they find it really difficult to let go of their expertise in something to basically empower and delegate to other people around them. Um, and I think leaders do this for various reasons. Um, sometimes it's because they maybe lack confidence or they are insecure about, you know, whether they'll be able to show how much they know. But a lot of leaders actually struggle with that simply because they know that they have to drive results fast. And in their mind, they're thinking, if I just go in there and do it, you know, then I'll, I'll be able to at least minimize the risk and, and speed the execution up. But again, as we know, in the long run, that really creates a, a lot of havoc. You become a bottleneck. You also become a micromanager, which nobody really likes to work for. And so you'll see a lot of companies see attrition and unhappy employees because their leader is not really able to, you know, kind of move, move back and do more coaching and, and um, you know, delegating as opposed to actually jumping in and doing it. Another derailer that I see with a lot of leaders is um, playing well in the sandbox with their peers. So, you know, as you know, one of the challenges I think for a lot of high potential, very intelligent, smart leaders is they have a lot of ambition and they want to achieve a lot in a short amount of time. And so, you know, it's very natural for people to have their, their blinders up and just think about their own department or their own job title and say, you know, I was a sales director and I want to be a VP of sales and I want to be the EVP of sales. Well, the thing is that every promotion means that you are potentially going to have to be the boss of the peers that you used to work with. And if those folks are going to run as soon as you get promoted because they can't stand you, that really is bad for you as a leader in your company. Uh, not only that, but if, of course, if you actually move up in your function, whether it's sales or finance or something like that, you do have to now drive results through lots of other functions that have nothing to do with sales or finance, for instance. You know, you have to drive through HR, you have to drive through the engineering or operations parts of the company. And so that requires, again, being able to influence laterally, not just, you know, rely on your own authority that you've been given. So that's something that that's, a, that's another common developer that I see. Yeah, I think you talked about balance and finding that balance of, of using the various uh, skills and experiences that, that you bring to the table as a leader. I wonder in your coaching work, um, how do you strike that balance between helping the executives you work with um, leverage their strengths? So making sure that they're using the things that, that, that really stand out about themselves, but also balancing it with, you know, mitigating some of the derailers that we're discussing now. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, going back to like the, my point of view, um, I'm someone that does believe that strengths should be leveraged, but I also <clears throat> depart a little bit from the strengths-based community in the sense that I do believe weaknesses are important to know and to, to develop. Um, largely because I think what people may not recognize is that weaknesses can have to often be over-leveraged strengths. So, you know, for instance, I've, I've coached leaders where, um, they might be very, the strength might be that they're very uh, results oriented. They're very driven. And then in, in a different context, that driven nature may be seen as overbearing, mm -hmm. intimidating, um, you know, uh, a bull in a china shop kind of thing. It all depends on the context. And so the first thing I do with my leaders is to think about what is the context for success where you are in your organization, whether it's your role, whether it's the system around you, whether it's even the culture of the, of the larger company. You know, for instance, if you're thinking about like some of the more entrepreneurial 
uh, energy companies. Well, a startup, a scrappy mindset, a, a uh, you know, kind of like take no prisoners approach might be the thing that's needed in, in those companies. Then all of a sudden you work at some of these more mature companies, public food traded companies, for instance, where people are like, you got to slow down. That's, that's, that's really freaking people out, you know, <laughs> and, and you're, you're really making a bad name for yourself as a leader. But the reality is that in any, diff, any, any specific situation, that strength could be seen as a weakness or a weakness could be seen as a strength. So I think um, when it comes to recognizing where you want to go as a leader, it's important to get a sense of the context, then also start surfacing any blind spots you have. Because the other thing is, that happens for a lot of leaders is they may think that they are aware of how people see them, but that's not always the case. And so I oftentimes encourage leaders to do a 360, for instance, you know, do some informal, or even if I'm a coach, I might formally actually ask their stakeholders, how, how is this leader doing? What suggestions would you have to, for them to be a more effective leader and influencer? And then have that leader actually go back to those folks and check in with them every now and then for a constant feedback loop. Um, because basically, as I mentioned, you know, if you're a leader, let, let's just say, for instance, you're a, uh, a mid-level manager and you are, you know, on the high potential train, you're, you're, you know, you're in the succession plan to become a, a director or a VP soon. A lot of times what happens is when they get promoted, they're not given a, blue, a, a playbook, you know, or a blueprint on how to succeed as a VP. They're just said, make sure you do well. And what happens is I think for anybody who's a high achiever is they automatically default to what they're good at, right? It's like the, what got you here won't get you there, yep. right? The thing is that could, that could be the key thing that derails them. The very thing that, that made them, you know, kind of shine as a manager could be the very thing that makes them become a very annoying, frustrating and disempowering VP. So, and, and so I think, again, the context is important and also getting yeah. as many stakeholders around you to give you that honest feedback. Yeah. So really knowing yourself well, before you can start to even think about influencing others um, and going back to the whole idea of the peer relationships being very important as you ascend uh, the, the levels of leadership, um, b- the willingness to seek out feedback when you might find yourself in a very competitive environment with your peers, right? That That's not always a comfortable thing. Um, do, do you work with leaders sometimes that are a little bit hesitant to, to want to want to seek out, uh, deliberately seek out feedback among people who may all be competing for the same ultimate role, right? Absolutely right. Yeah, no, that is, that's exactly right. Like it's, it's, um, it's such an interesting conundrum because in some ways, like I have, I'll have clients that will say, look, if I ask feedback from my peer, that it, it, it immediately positions me as someone who's deferential to them, mm-hmm. right? But I, I asked them to reframe that a little bit because I, I say, well, listen, you don't have to feel deferential to them, but you are feeling that way. Instead, position your, your request as an, as an equal, which is to say, hey, hey, peer, you know, what are some things that I could do differently as it relates to our meetings, you know, to be a better communicator? And if, it's, if you're open to it, I can offer you some feedback as well. So you're offering a little bit of a quid pro quo here, um, not just, hey, I'm going to check in with you like I check in with my boss, that kind of thing. But absolutely, people are, are very reticent to do it um, because I think one is hearing criticism is hard. But the other thing that happens is you, you don't want to hear criticism from people that you don't know are invested in your development yet. And not all peers are invested in your development. Right. Right. So you, if you go to somebody who you don't know really, really cares about me doing better, 
how do I know that their feedback isn't really meaningful? It's just more like a chance for them to put me down. Right. So that's where I go back to um, when you ask for feedback, don't necessarily ask for their opinion, ask for their observation on a particular competency. So I might say to a leader, go to your peer and say, I'm looking to be a better listener, you know, or I'm looking to be um, more, more strategic in, in how I present my, my data. Um, can you observe that and let me know kind of how I'm doing in that area? And then when you get the, with the feedback, you get to decide, is there real merit in that feedback? Because you can tell, right, whether it's actually subjective or it's an objective kind of feedback. And hopefully the better leaders out there know that they would, if they wanted to get good objective feedback from their peers, they'll give it to you as well as in return. Yeah. How, how hard is it for organizations to develop that kind of culture? We're talking now about, you know, an individual context, an individual leader having that mindset of wanting to seek out feedback. Mm-hmm. If I'm running an enterprise, how do I create an environment like that where all the leaders who work for me on my team um, start to develop that um, that comfortability, I guess, with with seeking out feedback to make it a routine part of our process of leading the organization. Yeah. So the first thing that comes to mind is this, it starts with the CEO and the CEO has to model those behaviors. Uh, they have to be show, show a willingness to ask for feedback, but also a willingness to to be vulnerable enough to share. These are the things that I've been working on and this has been my journey. Uh I, I, without question, I see companies where you see a CEO that is development oriented, it cascades down immediately. Um, and what's kind of nice about that is the, uh, you, it, you start developing a reputation as an organization where people want to work in because they can grow. They're not just being brought in to achieve a certain you know, transactional issue or a short-term thing. They're brought in because they say, Oh, you know, everybody knows that that CEO and that leadership team have coaches, for instance, or they're all asking us, you know, about how we can do better. They're out there talking about leadership development and succession planning as a constant um, strategy piece, not just the business. Um, You can tell after a while which companies promote from within, for instance. Mm. That's another example of of the companies that are really investing in their talent. Because a lot of companies will have this philosophy. They'll say, well, if I invest in my town and they go somewhere else, then what's the point? I wasted money, yeah. right? But that's such a, such a wrong way of looking at it. Why would you want to not invest in them if they're going to be with you, right? And frankly, the more you invest in one level, the more you're, they're going to, while they're there, they're going to be also measured on how well they're investing in the level below. So again, I go back to starts at the top and and creating that, that, at, that um, culture where you know, we think a lot about what like Carol Dweck talks about growth and fixed mindset. You really have to, to see the leaders that are able to recognize that we don't know everything. And it's all about iterating on what we're doing as opposed to this is wrong or this is, this is right. And when you have a leader that's in the, in the former camp, the growth mindset, I think you'll start seeing that cascade in the culture. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, thought that you just that you just made um, about uh, the idea of you know worrying about talent leaving the organization. We're going to invest all this time and, and energy, and they might go leave and take a CEO position at another company. Um, and I think a lot of companies think about their employment brand. They don't always think about their leadership brand. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love that, that how you just described that, that this idea of making making your company an attractive place for future leaders to want to come work so that they are, it's a, it's a good sign when other companies are trying to cherry pick 
uh, your top leaders because that means you're doing a great job of not just developing one successor for a role, but you're creating a culture where lots of people are, are rising to the top. Uh, so much so that you can't fit them all under your storehouse anymore. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, because you know the, the in, you know in, where I coach pretty much the C level and VP level. Um, as you know, there the, the issues we work on are are largely relationship oriented, or they're largely uh, interpersonal and intrapersonal issues. The reason why is bec- not because they're they're you know not good at those issues. It's largely because all the technical stuff and all the subject matter stuff. They already know, you know, it's it's pretty much they've already kind of developed enough expertise and experience in those areas that as a coach, I'm not going to go in there and really challenge you on this particular strategy. What I might challenge you on is how well are you communicating that strategy? How well are you engaging people around it? Um, how well are you are you pivoting from it when all of a sudden things go wrong and, and maybe your refusal to pivot is is actually stemming from a sense of your own limited beliefs, mm. you know, or your own insecurities, right? And that's where our coaching works. So when you're able to have leaders that are enlightened enough to look at those issues, it does create a culture where the people coming in, even, even the early career folks, when they think about in the t- next five, 10 years to become a VP or, or a C-level executive, they're like, oh, you know what? I can see that that's a leader I want to emulate. I want to be like that leader. Like I work with a company right now where we see like, you know, certain uh, bad behavior like any other company. But at the VP level, we can honestly say that there's no VP that doesn't have a sense of followership behind them. Like people actually want to leave divisions to work for that VP when they leave. That is a, that's not naturally made. Like that doesn't happen just overnight. That happens because of, of a leader is deliberately moving from a subject matter expertise in their, in their domain to now becoming a leader, which means that they're becoming more vulnerable and more insightful and actually doing deliberately practice, deliberate practice on their, their blind spots. Um, and so again, putting that into a company culture where you're developing leaders on those things and maybe bringing coaches and stuff, I think pays huge dividends for the rest of the organization. Yeah. Um, I, I want to get into some of your writing because you've, as I mentioned earlier, you've been quite prolific over this last year um, with some of the articles you put out, some of your thought leadership, which which I always get a lot of value from. You wrote an article, I believe, that was published in Forbes last year, right? maybe maybe right about a year ago, mm-hmm. as, as the pandemic was kind of just becoming a reality here in the United States. And uh, you very wisely and astutely pointed out, uh, I think it was the, the article was around the top five leadership challenges uh, going into the pandemic. And one of the ones that you mentioned, which, which I thought was was spot on, and it's one that I'm seeing as still a challenge with a lot of the leaders I work with, um, is this idea that uh, there's there's an expectation that, that senior leaders need to be more compassionate mm-hmm. and more caring about their employees. But yet there's also the tension of still being focused on achieving business results at the same time. Right. And uh, tell me about how that's played out over the last year. Um, how has is, how is that idea evolved and what are you seeing now a year later? Yeah, yeah. So I wrote that article um, actually March 16th, that week of, of when we all went home <laughs> last year. And uh, I think that's particularly why it, it you know got a lot of viewership. And one of the things that I did think about was you know, I, I, I kind of s- summarize it in, in, in a very pithy phrase, which is, do leaders um, check in as much as they check on you know, their people? 
So you're checking on your people, like, are you, where are you on this particular project, et cetera, on these deliverables, but are you checking in on them? That's something that a lot of leaders, I don't know if, if they were doing it as much as they, they needed to, particularly when the pandemic hit. Um, and I think what I've seen now is uh, I think there's still work to be ha- work to be done there, uh, you know, because I think leaders are, especially in the organizations we work with, I think uh, there is always a drive for quarterly results, for execution very quickly. There's never going to be a time when you can sit still and just kind of really just be present and still. I think you, you, you're always kind of on the move. But what I will say is that even the leaders that I worked with that may have been more closed up were forced to open up more. So it's not just about being more compassionate and empathic to their direct reports. They actually were, the road was, the kimono was kind of opened for yeah. them as well. We all, we all begin to see a more human side of our, of not just our colleagues at work, but, but our, our customers and clients yes. with all the Zoom meetings. And you're, you're literally looking into someone's bedroom or home office Absolutely. When, they're, when they're, you know, created a makeshift office on the, on the fly because now they can't go, go to their real office and, uh, I think so. There, there are definitely some some positives that came from that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really funny. Like, I have leaders who have had to have their kids kind of in the room while they're doing mm. big meetings. You know, uh, dogs are running around. My my dog is is a uh, running around every now and then. Um, so little things that you would you would generally be like, oh my god, I got to put it on mute. I can't let them see these things. Yeah. Now it's like, okay, look, we all get it. And I think that that shared humanity has been a real mm. plus. Uh, now, the thing that I, that a little bit troubling, I think, is that now I'm seeing a lot of anxiety between people who are have finally gotten into a groove in the way things are working now. And now we're like, oh, no, like now they wanted me to go back to the office in the way things were. And some leaders actually have been dying to do that. Mm-hmm. I think when you're an executive responsible for a large organization, obviously you feel better being together so you can kind of you know keep tabs on people and, and get a sense for how things are going. Um, but if your natural style is to be more private, uh, this could be a real big jolt to, to your sensibilities because you've actually, you finally, maybe you've even found your stride, you know, being at home. I know for many people that that's been true. Um, so I think, I think what I'd say going forward, I hope that leaders are still able to recognize the, uh, the humanity and also the vulnerability of people, uh, whether you've made it, may have lost somebody you knew to COVID or whether you, uh, are afraid about, you know, what, what the future holds or in, in particular, just having to manage your family from home, you know, things like that. I, I think that that's something that um, leaders are still dealing with. I, I, I'll tell you, I had a client that got promoted right in March, 2020 last year. So he was responsible for a brand new team globally that he had never met. Mm. And the whole plan in January and February was I'm going to get on a plane. I'm going to visit all these sites. I'm going to do all the, the, you know, the meet and greet and stuff like that. And boom, nothing happened. Right. And it has taken, it's still taken about a year, I think, to develop that. Not just they, 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 there's a trust there, but that kind of sense of familiarity and sense of like, yeah, we really get each other. Right. It's still not completely there. And so I think it's going to take some time, but I think what, what, what I recognized with a lot of leaders, and I recommended this as well, is how do you find more serendipitous moments to connect? Whether that's texting people, whether that's um, getting a more of a Zoom meeting that's not about work, but just to connect, right? I know it's hard to kind of reach out to strangers and network with them and be like, can I take a half hour out of your schedule get on Zoom? But I do think that the more you find opportunities to um, to adapt to that new normal, the, the, the better ahead I think you'll get in terms of your own leadership and your own career. 
Yeah, the, the the world of leadership and business certainly became more complex uh, last year. New layers of things that that companies never had to deal with before. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, so on that idea of like complexity, if you think about energy companies um, that are that are dealing not only with the the things that every other company's dealt with on the transition from COVID, but um, also some of the things going on in the industry just around you know uh, this push for more renewable forms of energy. Um, reducing the carbon footprint, which has become a, a huge issue that every company is talking about now. You got digital transformation and automation, mm-hmm. which which has ramped up. And then, of course, we we had a, a really a new issue that's taken the forefront again uh, with cybersecurity, with yeah. uh, the hacking of Colonial Pipeline a couple of weeks ago that created all kinds of havoc. Um, I wonder if you think about the, your coaching now with um, with with energy executives. Mm-hmm. How do you help them prioritize or think about prioritizing a lot of these really complex issues when there's only a finite amount of headspace um, for, for them to, to operate? Yeah, it is. The job of an energy executive with all those dynamics is extremely daunting. Uh, one of the things that I recommend to executives, particularly CEOs and their leadership teams, is to get a sense for the, all their stakeholders you know, and what they, what their needs are at the moment. And we're talking everybody from not just shareholders, you know, not just the board, not just employees, but even society at large, because there's a lot of that too. You know, the reputational element is a, is a big one for energy companies, uh, media, you know, what, what are they, what are they saying about mm-hmm. us, share price, et cetera, but really getting a sense for, for all your stakeholders and being willing, I think, to listen without judgment on what those suggestions might be particularly when you are in moments of crisis. And then how do you, and by the way, the listening part can be done very fast. It doesn't have to be like some long drawn out exercise. The idea here is to make sure that you're at least getting enough information. So you're not, so you're removing any hubris and then really having a, a, a plan of action and executing. And by that, I mean, you know, really getting people in place that are communicating constantly. I would say over communication is the key. Uh, particularly in times like this, when, because you want to control the narrative, you know, whatever you're doing, whether it was with, with the pipeline issue, whether it's with, 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 um, the carbon footprint or, and, and even, even digitalization. I mean, that's another issue too, is just how do you actually get, um, so much change happening within the company quickly? You're really, you're really shifting people's mindsets, not just their behaviors. And I think the more you communicate, the more you have a leader that's out there, letting people know, we know what we're doing. You know, even if we're going to move and, and change direction, we know what we're doing and you can trust that. I think that makes a big difference. Now, when I'm coaching executives individually, uh, you know, kind of behind closed doors, that's when you want to uncover a little bit of what their own internal dialogue is going on. Because, you know, when you're in a crisis, some of our dark side behaviors come out, you know. So some leaders, for instance, might be, be, become more withdrawn you know, when, when they really shouldn't be, uh, or some leaders might say, well, you know, they become more overbearing when it comes to conflict. And that's another area where they can really hinder the best intentions that they have as a leader. So I try to tell, tell, tell executives to think about when you're in the crisis, when you're dealing with all these different prioritizations, priorities that you you need to organize, think of, get help, get, get enough. Don't, don't try to do it all by yourself. Have a great team in place, talk to peers, Talk to competitors even sometimes. You know, one of the things that I, when I was at Texas Instruments, what I found really, really interesting was that they would get involved in the semiconductor industry and with other competitors to learn about 
best because it, ultimately it helps everybody. The rising tides of all boats. So I think oil executives, even oil and gas executives, even if they're competing with other companies, get them in the room together and start talking about these issues. That can be really helpful as well. Um, so these are some of the things that I would I would suggest to an executive. Yep. Um, Nihar, we're, we're almost, uh, we're almost at our in end time here. Unfortunately, uh, I could, I could do this a long time with you because I, I, I just didn't really enjoy catching up. One last question for you, as you think back over this last 12 months or so, uh, since the pandemic started, I know there's all of us can think of things like that we learned or took away from, from this year, whether those are personal or, or, or professional, but I wonder, is there, is there something that maybe stands out to you in terms of what you've learned in your personal experience over the last year that you're going to take away from the pandemic uh, time period? And, and how will that show up in the coaching work you do? Yeah, I think that this year forced me to also be more uh, reflective and and vulnerable too. You know, when, when, when the pandemic happened, I wasn't sure if my clients were all of a sudden going to disappear, you know, if my business was going to even be around. What's very ironic is my business actually – uh, has exceeded uh, past years in, in over the pandemic. And I, I used to think it was because, oh, well, I did virtual work before, so there wasn't a lot of disruption. I think the reason why it actually did better, and I hope that continues, are two things. One is that people, I think, needed coaching at a time like this. They needed more of a sounding board uh, when they couldn't actually just run across to somebody in the office you know, to, to talk through, things through. Uh, and also when things became a little bit more real, not just business oriented, but also managing work-life balance and everything, it's like, who can I talk to that's more uh, objective and, and really just somebody that can be safe, safe around? And, and coaching really does that. And, and, but the second part of it, I think the reason why uh, things worked out was because I was being more vulnerable. So in coaching, what happens is I think the, the format is usually that I'm asking all the questions, right? And, and I'm trying to help the executive. And so typically we try, try to have this philosophy that we don't talk about ourselves too much. Mm -hmm. But over the year, I've had certain ups and downs that have happened. And I realized that the more I kind of slowly slipped them in, leaders themselves felt more like we were on an even playing field. And it wasn't like they had to feel like they had to constantly be asked all the questions. They were asking me questions. And that also shifted my paradigm. And in fact, wow, we can actually be partners and I can be a, a business provider to you, but also I don't have to be buttoned up, you know? Yeah. And in me being more vulnerable, I had a client that actually told me that. He said, Nihar, when you were vulnerable in this particular moment about something that happened to you, that showed me how to be vulnerable instead of you telling me I should be more vulnerable with my team. So I didn't know, do that purposely, but actually I modeled that. And I realize that the more courageous I can be and the more I can kind of step into learning and developing myself, the more my leaders will probably do that as well. And so that's something that I'm going to take forward into my coaching practice going forward. Yeah, good stuff, Nihar. Hey, Nihar, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to catch up with you. Thanks for spending time with us. Thank you, Ryan. It's been amazing uh, talking with you, and I'm so glad we reconnected. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to have you on again because there's a lot more there's a lot more topics on leadership and business that I want to pick your brain on. And again, thank you, Nihar. Hey, if you if you want to learn more about Nihar's business partner exec or about him, uh, there'll be a link to his website in the show notes. So please click on that, and I'll also put his LinkedIn profile there if you want to reach out and, and connect directly to Nihar. He would be open to that as well. Um, thank you all for pressing play again. We really appreciate it. Also want to thank again our show sponsors, the good folks at the Price College of Business. 
the University of Oklahoma's Executive MBA program in energy. Please check them out. There's also a link uh, in the show notes if you want to learn more about their programs. And finally, if you've enjoyed our first couple of shows here, you want to give us some feedback, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review either on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you access your podcast. So until next time, everybody, thanks. Have a great day. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for May 2021. This month, we have four events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our online events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our in-person event, which is the 20 YPO's networking mixer at the Houston Club on May 25th. Next, we have our three online events, the Post-Industrial Summit Series from May 4th to June 22nd, the Data Fabric and Data Ops webinar on May 5th, and the Maritime Career Day hosted by Women Offshore on May 21st. Other than these events, OGGN has a live stream this month titled Identifying and Evaluating Advantaged Oil Projects on May 5th. So make sure to check that out on our Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com for more information. You can also find more information about that or any of the live streams or events we have coming up also on Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for May. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for another enlightening episode of Journey to the Energy C-Suite, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.